Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Ladines Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. The truth is that the judge matters and judges are human and they are all very different. And a judge that you are assigned to can have a massive effect on the entire trajectory of the case. That's our guest today, Nicole Clark, co-founder and CEO of Trellis. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again as we continue to explore our fundamental civil and constitutional rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Hi, Jackie. I'm Mitch Winnick, and I am the Dean of Monterey College of Law. We also have campuses in San Luis Obispo, Kern County, and Santa Rosa. Jackie, I'm really pleased today to have a slightly different direction with our program. Many of our prior guests have been law professors, and they talked about some of the more, I don't want to say obscure, but intentionally deep conversations about constitutional issues that are being challenged. Today, we're looking more to the future, not the past. I'm really pleased that we have as our guest, Nicole Clark. Nicole Clark brings a very unusual background to us. She's not only a lawyer, has been a practicing lawyer, but she's an entrepreneur. She has started one of the more forward-looking technology companies in legal tech that I believe is going to change access to justice. So, Jackie, I know that you also have thought about the idea that not just the idea of legal tech, but celebrating the idea of having something other than white males dominate legal tech. Mitch, I am excited to have Nicole on the show. First, because I believe Trellis is going to transform our understanding of what is a very opaque state court system. The vast majority of Americans' contact with the legal system is in the state courts, but it's almost like a black box. Trellis is going to bring more transparency to that system. And second, as you noted, I'm very pleased that Nicole is an entrepreneur who successfully obtained venture capital funding in a space that is notoriously hard for women to break through. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. And I'll also note that Trellis is a sponsor of Sidebar, and so Nicole has that going for her too. Nicole, welcome to Sidebar. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Nicole, let's start with what I think is one of the most interesting aspects of your new groundbreaking legal technology, which is your belief that Trellis.law is going to provide better access to justice. Tell us a little about that. Absolutely. So uh, we focus on the state trial court systems and making the data and records there accessible to the public, to attorneys um, across the board. And right now, absent trellis, court records are really siloed and fragmented across thousands of individual county courts. And without knowing 
where to go without knowing a case number. You really can't pull any information. So this is at its core public data, but the courts don't make it accessible. And therein lies an issue of it's public, but is it really public if it's not accessible? And really opening up the judicial system for the United States state trial court system, which is the largest court system in the world and has historically been just this entire black box that's been really inaccessible up till now. Yeah. And I think one of the things that uh, you just mentioned is is it's public data, but it hasn't really been public in in the true sense of the word, at least not the way we think about it now. So have you received any resistance from courts or others to the collection of this data and making it available? I think at at their core, the the courts, the judiciary knows that this data belongs to the public as a First Amendment right access to information. So the the pushback, I would say, is more they feel like we're an annoyance, <laughs> but they're but they they wouldn't prohibit us from accessing the data because they know they don't actually have a constitutional right to do so. Nicole, I think there's always some confusion when technology and recently particularly artificial intelligence, AI, gets involved in the justice system. Sure. And there's this there's been this uproar about the unauthorized practice of law now that technology is going to be practicing law not lawyers yes it does not strike me that trellis.law crosses into that area but my suggestion is that you may get painted into that box by people who don't know any better talk a little about that we don't we don't do any practice of law so if you think about it as uh, you know some of the the core traditional legal research websites that folks may be used to lexis westlaw bloomberg etc we're just like them we are a separately hosted website that just provides court records and documents this is data that's otherwise public and it's up to the public to research and then probably contact an attorney. And it's up to attorneys to do the research. But there's no part of us that is appearing in court or anything related to the actual practice of law. We're a tool for lawyers, if anything, but certainly couldn't be utilized without a lawyer or someone researching, really doing the work of of trying to understand the nuance of what's actually in the public record. We are going to take a brief break from our discussion with Nicole Clark. Nicole is a lawyer, entrepreneur, and CEO of Trellis. When we return, Nicole will discuss Trellis's legal research tool that she believes will transform litigation. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more, or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike@trellis.law, or visit our website, trellis.law. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Nicole Clark, CEO of Trellis, a legal tech company that is seeking to make access to important state court records more transparent and searchable. I want to follow up. When I was looking at the judicial analytics dashboard, so when I first became an attorney and I was able to clerk for a judge at the federal district court, and he did a lot of patent cases. When I left that clerkship, I received a call from someone who had a very large case in front of him, wondering if they could invite me up to New York to speak to them uh, and meet with their team about the judge that I worked for. And so I called him up and I said, what do you think? Should, should I take advantage of this opportunity or would you be uncomfortable or what would be the parameters? And he's like, go ahead. If they're going to pay you to do that and take you to New York, do it. So I, I did, keeping within appropriate ethical boundaries regarding what I could disclose, but it was specifically about getting information from him anecdotally yes. that you are now providing through your website. So talk to me a little bit about this idea of how attorneys can effectively use the judicial analytics tool that you provide. Absolutely. And so you you had a, a situation where they actually flew you in, but it is not uncommon. When I was practicing law, the way that we sourced information on the judges that we were appearing before was via email. You send around an email firm-wide and you say, does anyone have any intel on judge so-and-so? At best, you get some anecdotes <laughs> that are likely heavily biased but whatever by whatever the actual case was about or the attorney's experience, but you're certainly not getting any real qualitative data. I, I like to think of those responses as uh, anic data. <laughs> so you you source some of those and then you're really making as an attorney very substantial decisions sometimes based off of these anecdotes. And so a part of as we continue to gather this data at the state trial court system, I just said, there's got to be a better way than sourcing information internally via email. So what we did is we started to put the data together, looking by judge at all of the motions that they're hearing, and then looking at their grant and denial rates. So for each judge, we have created a judicial analytics dashboard. There's the biography of the judge with the subjective information. There's a high level of how many cases, how busy are they, what types of cases do they hear? And then there's a really granular motion analytics, which is motion by motion, how does this judge rule on specific pretrial motions? Because the truth is that the judge matters and judges are human and they are all very different. And a judge that you are assigned to can have a massive effect on the entire trajectory of the case. And what you're saying really changes or or really uh, brings to light that it is not balls and strikes as Justice Roberts would have us believe at the Supreme Court. Yes, that's exactly right. Nicole, let me just follow up with what Jackie just talked about. It's not just balls and strikes. And I, I know I keep coming back to this artificial intelligence issue, but I think it is overshadowing the potential of programs like yours. Mm -hmm. The, your program isn't suggesting to a lawyer the strategy they should take with a specific judge or a specific issue. It sounds like 
your program is providing the comprehensive data that a lawyer can go go through to make those decisions. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely a fair assessment. We don't recommend judges or basically make any decision on whether the the judge will be favorable for your case or what you should do with the information. What we're doing is simply providing the aggregate data so that lawyers can then, with their experience and understanding nuance, can do what they do best, which is create a strategy around, based on this data, around how they think it would be best to move forward. So that's absolutely right. We don't, we're not creating the strategy for them. We're providing them the data so that they can better create a strategy. We're going to take another brief break to hear from our sponsor. But when we return, our guest, Nicole Clark, will describe what it was like to try to obtain venture capital funding for Trellis, the legal tech company she founded. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Let's talk about the creating the data and your history a bit. I, I alleged at the beginning the challenge of trying to get legal technology funded. It really is yes. the very beginning of this industry, I think. I did, I did venture capital 10, 15 years ago. And actually, I can confirm that we, we didn't get very many recommendations for funding that didn't come from fairly traditional sources. And those did not reflect very many voices in the community. So here you are, a female attorney with a technology idea. Share with us a little that journey. It must have been very challenging. It, it definitely was. And I would say that in truth, whenever, whenever there's success, there's probably a combination of hard work and luck in some cases. And there were various opportunities that were probably involved luck as well in, in order to get this business off the ground. But there's no question, uh, when I started the company, I, I knew that only less than 2% of capital goes to female founders. And you go in trying to sort of counter against that. But just getting the meetings in the first place can be incredibly hard as a, a female, there's not enough success stories yet of us building massive businesses. And what VCs tend to do is just pattern recognition. So they know that the last unicorn was built by someone who dropped out of Stanford and uh, was an 18-year-old white male, right? <laughs> and so they then create, they, they just create um, and move forward with, that's what I'm looking for, for who I believe will be able to build the next business. And so you have to counter against that. The other thing that, that 
I've noticed and probably other female founders would say is the, the questions that we get asked are slightly differently. So questions posed to male founders often are around how big can this be, right? And for women, it's often what are the risks involved, <laughs> right? And so we're set up just by the questioning sometimes to not be successful. Nicole, what do you think made it possible for you to be one of the 2%? The truth is you have to go through a lot of no's and just keep pushing through. And it's interesting, um, as a founder, you can probably get 10, 20 no's that won't hurt. And then there's one that just comes in that's painful. <laughs> and you don't always know why, but I'd say I was ultimately incredibly lucky. I did have a white male co-founder on the technology side, and I would say that no doubt probably helped a little bit in uh, the overall assessment of us as an early business. Another thing I'd say, which is probably an unpopular opinion, is that there are a lot of uh, women VCs, and or at least a, some amount, and you know, I think I really early on hoped that it would be that group that would be most sympathetic, empathetic. And that's not, that wasn't actually my experience. My experience was that the, the, the female VCs, you know, talked a lot about empowering women, but when it came down to it, were probably some of the most risk averse and we weren't able to get any early real capital from yeah. uh, female VCs. And, and that was, that was difficult because you hear a lot of talk, but you don't actually see the actions backing it up. Yeah. that That's so interesting. And, and in, in some ways they're facing some of the same obstacles that you were in terms of seeking money, which is that they have to invest in that unicorn that's going to be successful. Yep. So they're taken seriously in the VC world. And so it's a vicious cycle. It's very um, true. I, I, I want to, just talk a moment again about uh, resistance. So law and tech, uh, <laughs> um, we have a lot of legal tech companies that are engineer, software, technology focused, but don't have a lot of law or legal expertise or professionals within it. Yes. And we also have a legal profession that is seemingly resistant to the law and tech combination. So how has your how's Trellis doing in terms of adoption within the legal profession? That is such a great question. And both of those points are infinitely true. So on on the first side of just founders and whether they are tech focused or have any legal domain expertise, I genuinely believe that someone has to have experience, domain expertise in the product they're building. Because the truth is there is so much nuance and language and uh, just information that an engineer or someone with a business background is never going to understand about right. the, what the actual practice of law is. Right. I can't imagine being able to have, for someone else to have been able to build Trellis without knowing just being in the trenches of what it actually is and what you need to do and what you're looking for in motions and what types of motions are important. It just right. goes on and on. 
the resistance of lawyers and law firms to technology is so real. It really is. Right. It's something that we battle. And I think that everyone's selling into legal battles. It's funny. I remember when, when I was seeking venture capital, the VCs, as soon as they heard it, we were, the legal was a market, they were out. It was immediate. They had been burned. Everyone knows that this industry massively needs to be have innovation. And yet they haven't seen anyone successfully do it. And it's because some of those exact reasons. Nicole, this is a good point to take a break. When we return, we want to focus more on the legal profession's resistance to embracing technology and what it might take for the culture to shift. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back to our discussion with Nicole Clark, CEO of Trellis, a legal tech company seeking to democratize access to state court records. Now, the question is, what will it take for lawyers to adopt this powerful tool? The prediction of the culture shift in law has been coming for decades, but some of those who, the pundits in that area, see chat GPT and some of the other AI tools as transforming it and perhaps absolutely shifting the culture um, dramatically in a shorter time. Do you, true. do you see that as, as happening? I actually do think it's going to happen. My question is timing. So I, I firsthand know how difficult it is to sort of uh, get a get adoption. And we've done a great job and come so far, but it is not an easy industry to have uh, adoption take place very quickly, which is really what you need to do to grow a business, uh, certainly a venture-backed business. I believe that ultimately the, the the corporate clients are what will create the cycle that will cause law firms to change. So Nicole, let's let's play with that for just a minute because that's the fun sure. part. And I'm not ascribing this to Trellis.Law's plans for the future, but let's just talk about the three of us. We've Absolutely. we have heard about a lot of information that could use AI, including they call it robot judges, but the the fact yes. of the matter is it's not hard to see a future where algorithms could be built to have a very useful, let's say, starting at the lower levels of judiciary, traffic court, misdemeanors, infractions. You yes. now have, you are going to be a company that has a database of judicial decision making, which is one of yes. the questions of garbage in, garbage out, except you're not going to have garbage. You're going to have the actual judicial decision-making. Yes. Yes. Tell us about how that might look in the future. And we won't predict what year, but how might that look in the future from the viewpoint of someone who has been at the beginning of it? I, I think it's a great point, and you hit on exactly why 
um, we have something special in terms of bringing in uh, OpenAI or, or GPT-3 or 4 now, which is, in general, ChatGPT up until now has been um, trained on a, a giant database, right? Massive, massive database. But when we go back to where we cover the, the trial court system and judicial opinions, it hasn't been trained on that because those documents aren't readily accessible. We've put so much work into obtaining those and structuring them so that they can be useful ultimately to train large language models. And what I believe is that at the end of the day, what really will win here in the, the large language model is being able to train on valuable proprietary data sets. And so we could be incredibly valuable to feed a, a language model our data where then you can say, write me a motion uh, that is on these issues before this judge that will win. Now, it, I don't believe the lawyer is ever taken out of the equation in that. I definitely think the lawyer can be taken out of the equation in civil infractions, traffic tickets. There's a lot of things where lawyers can and should likely be taken out of the equation that will be easy fixes very quickly. But when you're talking about complex litigation, lawyers can use these tools. And I believe that we will have something incredible be very, because exactly of our data set and the winners in other industries as well. It will be the data sets that they're able to train the language models on that will differentiate them from everyone who can put in a question to ChatGPT, which is trained on the same data set. So there'll be a lot of that, but the very, very specialized and valuable information will likely be companies that have unique data sets. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And when we return, Nicole Clark, lawyer, entrepreneur, and CEO of Trellis, will provide her predictions on how artificial intelligence and chat GPT will transform the work that lawyers do. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out an honorable profession wherever podcasts are found. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law. I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede. To learn more or apply, visit montereylaw.edu. While we have you, someone with this type of background, okay, Jackie and I might have a little better understanding of what chat GPT is or what large language data sets are. But the vast majority of the world is clueless and the general news is not doing much in the way of educating them. Can you give us a more simple 
version of what is it we're talking about when we talk about chat GPT, large data sets? What is that going to be that's going to provide this foundation for these types of services? You can think of a, a large language model as just sort of a learning machine. What you're doing is you're feeding it a ton of data and it's learning from that data. And then it's also learning from the questions it gets wrong and the questions that you ask and starting to infer. So it's basically an algorithm that is able to constantly try to get more accurate. And it's now able to do so with natural language responses. That's something that's new. And so what ChatGPT is, and there's newer models that they're continuing to release, but it's basically the ability to think about like a Google search that you would enter in, but you'd enter in in the form of a question. And now what the language model is doing, which is ChatGPT, is taking all the information it's learned, and it has been trained basically on the internet so there's good and bad to that, <laughs> but it's a lot of information. We can all agree it's a lot of information. And then from there, it answers in natural language a response that likely is indistinguishable from what you might think a human would respond. Nicole, I when you're talking about that, it makes me think that I could envision being in a law school classroom saying, chat GPT give me the answer of Antonin Scalia on this issue. And then you make your yes. argument and it argues back. Yes. Now tell me the counterpoints. It's, it really is incredible. It really, it really, really is, I think, the starting place of something that we have no concept of where it will end up because this is the, this is the base starting point and even... Uh, you know, the founders recognize that we're going to do our best to try and uh, think of the ethical issues as we move forward. We hope it does more good than harm, and we're watching. And that's a very open, honest answer to something that we all can recognize at this point is fairly powerful. Yeah. And, and the ethics of AI is a completely different oh. show that we would need it to have. We, yeah, we could absolutely. have a season on, on ethical <laughs> implications. I think it's a great place for us to end because it is about the future of legal tech. And it seems like Trellis Law has positioned itself so well to ride the crest of change because you have the database built, you continue to build with other states coming in and online all the time. Absolutely. And I'm excited to see the direction that you go. And I'm excited to introduce this to our students because I think it's most of our students are going to practice at the state level. So this is going to be incredibly valuable for them, especially within California. Absolutely. I love that. And I couldn't agree more that just showing students what is available in forms of technology to help them practice is massively uh, valuable to them and, and them being able to grow in their career and get up to speed faster. It is a hard learning curve when you get out of law school and anything that we can do to help them swim rather than sink immediately is in everyone's interest. So thank you so much, Nicole. Nicole, thank you very much for being our guest today. I think this has given us lots to think about, not only about the current practice of law, 
but I think most importantly, the future direction of law. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jackie and Mitchell. It was so great chatting with you guys. Stay with us and hear Mitch and Jackie's thoughts on today's conversation. Jackie, this has been a fascinating conversation, as many of these are, but I particularly like the idea that we're looking towards the positive application of artificial intelligence in the practice of law. I believe that recent news has spent a lot of time talking about the problems and really the fear-mongering about using technology in law, when in fact what we've just learned is there are a lot of positive aspects of making technology and law provide greater access to justice. I think you're right, Mitch. What, what Nicole has done with Prelis Law is really exciting. and But I, I do have to just bring up some of the other ways that it might be used. You know, it's interesting when I was looking at it and exploring and kind of um, poking around in Trellis Law, which I encourage others to do, there was a particular way for people to actually um, allow their record to be removed. So in sweeping up all the data, apparently there's times where sealed records get swept up into that data as well. And so they had to create a mechanism for people to have their record removed and to make sure that it remains sealed at the state court. So there is a danger, as there always is, when we are creating large data sets. The other thing that is is interesting to me is right now it's being used with investigators and lawyers uh, who are interested in state court decision making. I'm wondering when it's going to get swept into politics. I wonder when judicial elections uh, are going to be affected by what's mined in these in this particular data set and recalls will occur or other information is going to be exposed for for good or ill on judicial decision making and whether or not we can um, uh, whether or not it, it, it's appropriate and, and how that might affect voters' perceptions of judges. Jackie, as, as with a number of our topics, I guess the answer is all of it comes as a cautionary tale, that it needs to be a thoughtful process and not just a knee-jerk reaction to go one direction or the other direction. But it's here, and it's here to stay. So we're going to have to learn how to create the guardrails we need around it, and that's where uh, the legal and regulatory world comes in. So we will be talking about this a lot more, I'm sure, in the coming episodes. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to hear what's on your mind, and you can do that by going to sidebarmedia.org. Thank you to our producer and musical muse, who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial, Gogo Zoger. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.